Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So I wanted to start off this video with a quote from Henry Ford that many of you may be familiar with. Do the old screen share. Here it is. It is well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system. Or if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. Now, most of you understand what he's talking about. He's talking about fractional reserve lending. That although they may, uh, although you may have a hundred dollars in your bank account, the the bank doesn't have the hundred dollars. Those are simply IOUs. For ninety nine percent of the population, they understand this. They they totally get it. I would argue maybe back then they didn't, but now they do. But unfortunately it gets a lot worse. You see, what I mean is people who understand how fractional reserve banking works, assuming that that's what we have and we don't, but people that that understand at least that much of the banking system, they say, well, you know, at the end of the day, the Federal Reserve can go ahead and print the money. So if we have this big problem and uh, the bank doesn't have enough well, then the Fed can print it and then we're good to go. I mean, at the end of the day, they absolutely 100% can bail out a bank through creating more bank reserves. No one would dispute that. But that's assuming that the banking system is built, or the monetary system, is built on cash. It's assuming that it's built on dollars. It's assuming that it's built on something that the Federal Reserve can print. But what if it's not? Let me show you a a diagram that I received from my good buddy, Jeff Snyder. And uh, I want to thank him. I used this in a whiteboard video. I asked his permission today. And this is something that's behind his paywall, but he said that I could go ahead and use it. So huge hat tip to my good buddy, at Jeff Snyder at Euro Dollar University. If you like this type of content, you got to check out his website. This diagram that we're going to be going over is just the tip of the iceberg. He's, we're, we're going to be barely scratching the surface as to how the monetary system actually works and how even if people have an advanced view of uh, you know this whole network, they don't understand this part of it. <laughs> and if, if there would be a revolution by tomorrow morning, if they understand what now is, is, is pretty commonsensical, boy, oh boy, oh boy, uh, like I said in the title of this video, I think if they knew this part of it, there would be riots in the streets and um, a very, very small fraction of individuals, even experts, understand how this part of it works. So what am I talking about specifically? I'm talking about rehypothecation. And for those of you who think you know how it works, I would argue that you don't. So let's go through this and understand that this is wildly oversimplified. And at the end of going through this daisy chain, of transactions that include no bank reserves, that include no green pieces of paper. Ask yourself if you were cynical enough about the fragility of our current system. So we start with a bunch of banks. We got Bank of Russia, Emil, Bank of Emil in Grand Cayman. <laughs> we got Bank of uh, Singapore, we'll call it Montreal, Bahamas, Switzerland. And then we actually have an entity in the real economy. Imagine that. Eurodollar Enterprises, we'll just call it a widget maker. And we've got a couple of dealer banks, Global First Dealer and BSD, Global 
dealer bank. And then over here, we've got the board insurance company. Okay. So first of all, what we need to clarify is th these balance sheets do not have or do not explain the settlement process. What it assumes is that all of these entities have an account, all the banking entities have an account with the dealer bank. And the, the dealer bank is just simply taking uh, commercial bank deposit liabilities for them, assets of the bank, and just moving them from account to account, just like Wells Fargo would do if you transferred $1,000 from your account to your buddy's account that also banks with Wells Fargo. So that this is not we're not getting into the nitty gritty of the settlement process. We're just simply looking at this through the lens of lending uh, repo, therefore rehypothecation. And the reason why I want to hit so hard on rehypothecation is because what you will see at the end of this diagram is that this is exactly, exactly uh, the quote unquote leverage that most people assume is in the banking system regarding bank reserves. But in this case, it's regarding treasuries. And that is something that the Federal Reserve cannot print, right? You say, well, George, the, the government's doing a great job of printing plenty of those. Well, uh, are they printing plenty? Um, I mean, I, I hate the debt just as much as anyone else. You guys know that from watching my videos. But if we look at it strictly through the, ten, the lens of the monetary system, if there were plenty of treasuries out there for this system to function, whether we like it or not, then you wouldn't need rehypothecation, would you? Right? Like I said in a tweet yesterday, I don't think there's anybody or any entity that is rehypothecating Turkish lira or Argentinian pesos. <laughs> Why? There's plenty of supply relative to the demand. But if we're out there rehypothecating something, by definition, there isn't enough of them to fulfill demand, as perverse as that may be. Let's go through this. So we've got this deposit that comes onto the balance sheet of this, uh, we'll just call it Russian bank, assuming there's no sanctions. This diagram was probably done before the whole invasion thing. And uh, so now they have an additional $900,000 asset as well that is on the liability side of the, we'll just say the first dealer bank, their, asset, their uh, balance sheet. So what they do is they keep 90000 they lend out, 810. Now, is this because there's a reserve requirement? Absolutely not. Nope, nope, nope. And this system uh, outside of the United States or now inside the United, there is no reserve requirement. And even when there was, the banks didn't pay any attention to it. We know that definitively. So this just assumes that this Bank of Russia, for whatever reason, is being prudent. So they want to hold 90,000. So they're going to go ahead and lend out 810 uh, goes onto the balance sheet of Grand Cayman. Now, this could have been them lending to one of their customers or just lending to the bank uh, itself. And then uh, this green arrow, which we've kind of chopped off here, is light green. That's where the additional, call it uh, what, 190 is coming from that makes up this 1 million total. So the process kind of just continues here that now this Grand Cayman Bank, because they have the assets that were transferred to their uh, effectively a checking account with this global dealer bank. Uh, now they feel as though they can go ahead and create a million dollars worth of loans. So they do that. They decide not to keep a reserve at all. So this million dollar quote unquote cash asset, although there's no cash, there's no bank reserves. Uh, 
this becomes a $1 million loan to Singapore Bank. Okay. Now, the interesting thing about Singapore Bank is they're kind of the new kid on the block, so to speak. Another way that you could look at this is uh, as individuals have credit scores, so do the banks have risk profiles within this network itself, right? So let's just assume that the Russian bank's credit score is 750. Grand Cayman Bank credit score, let's just say it's 780. Yikes, their credit score is 600. So boy, oh boy, oh boy, 600, all right. So what happens is Grand Cayman Bank says, yeah, we'll, we're willing to go ahead and lend you a million dollars. And that's what this purple line is indicating right here. But since you've got a horrible credit score, man, we're going to need some collateral for that transaction. Now, unfortunately, the Singaporean bank does not have any collateral, at least the collateral that the Grand Cayman Bank will accept. Let's assume that the only thing that they will accept are T-bills, treasuries. But what they do have is a bunch of, we'll just call it junk bonds that they have from just lending to local corporations or something like that. So they go to their buddies over at Global First Dealer Bank, which keep in mind has accounts for all of these banks that are listed in this diagram. And they say, look, we've had a relationship with you for the last 25 years. Although we have a 600 credit score, you know that we're good for the money and we really need to get this loan from the Grand Cayman Bank. So we just need to borrow treasuries from you. And they say, yeah, okay. I mean, we do have a working relationship, so we'll give you the treasuries. Uh, you got to pay us for them. Uh, you got to pay us an interest rate. Um, but unfortunately, our risk management department is looking at your balance sheet or your risk profile, your credit score, and saying, okay, we'll do the deal, but we need some form of collateral from you for us to even give you the treasuries that you can pledge to Grand Cayman to get that million dollar loan. They say, okay, fine. We'll go ahead and pledge a million dollars worth of these junk bonds that we have. And plus we'll pay you an interest rate to go ahead and do the transaction. So the dealer bank says, yeah, fine, no problem. Then what happens is they now all of a sudden have these treasures on their balance sheet. Notice the treasures on, or would be on two balance sheets here. And they can go ahead and do the deal. They get the million. This gives them a million dollars worth of cash assets that would be uh, credited to their account at Global First Dealer Bank. But on top of that, remember, they now can say that these U.S. treasuries are on their balance sheet as well as far as an asset. So their assets go from $1 million up to $2 million, and that would be the loan that they extend to the Bank of Montreal plus the treasuries that they borrowed, um, kind of, <laughs> from, from First Dealer Bank. So then we just go through this process again. We go over to the Bahamas. Now, what's interesting when we get to the Bank of the Bahamas, they, in order to get this loan from Montreal, they've got a little different situation because unfortunately, they don't have a relationship with Global First Dealer Bank like Singapore does. So the only dealer bank they have a relationship with would be this BSD Global. Okay, well, why does that make things different? Because BSD Global doesn't have any treasuries. So although they're willing to go ahead and do this transaction with Bahamas because they have a working relationship with them, they say, look, dude, you've got a 600 credit score and we're going to have to have some sort of collateral from you uh, and Bahamas says, yeah, okay, we've got the junk bonds. We can go ahead and pledge. Um, 
give us the treasuries. And BSD says, okay, um, just give me a minute. Give me a minute. So they get on the phone and they're like, look, you know, we can make a good spread on this. This is a, a great profit opportunity, but damn it, we don't have the T-bills. So what they do is they call up their good buddy over here at the insurance company because they know that the insurance company has tons of treasuries or pension fund, whatever, that they're just sitting on. And these guys would love to increase their yield. Just think about a pension fund. I mean, you guys know all the problems that we have here in the United States. These pension funds that they promise or they make commitments that force them to get a 7% return per year. But a lot of these funds have had negative returns. Or let's just say they've got 5% because interest rates are so low. So how do they make up that delta? Like this, exactly like this. So for those of you who have a pension, I don't know, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a firefighter, maybe you're a police officer or something like that. And you think that your pension is on the straight and narrow. And somehow they're just creating these returns. You don't know how they're doing it. And they're doing it with what they say is very, very, very low risk. Because look, they're, they're just buying the safest assets on the planet. I mean, they're just buying, buying treasuries. So you've got nothing to worry about as a school teacher. What you don't know is this is happening behind the scenes. So BSD borrows the treasuries from the insurance company, and then they lend the treasuries to Bahamas. Now, keep in mind, these treasuries are on three balance sheets now. <laughs> the same treasuries, three balance sheets. Now, remember, let's go back to what we were talking about at the beginning. When we just look at this leverage system as though it's just claims on dollars. And as long as the Fed can print more dollars, well, that might be inflationary, or, you know, the narrative, but at least they can prop up the system. But what if those dollars or the creation of those dollars was predicated upon treasuries? See, what if the risk goes up? Well, we'll get into that in a moment. So then they go ahead and this Bahamas bank lends to Switzerland. Now, finally, we get to the point where the Swiss bank lends to an actual real entity <laughs> in the real economy. And then uh, they take that million dollars, they deposit it with Grand Cayman Bank, and then we just go whoop right back into this cycle. It can just repeat over and over and over and over again. So now let's think about this a couple different ways. Let's assume that we have an inverted yield curve. Let's assume that we have something called the BTFP. And it's going like this. Let's also assume we've got something called commercial real estate. And let's also assume that we've got something called China going into a complete meltdown to the point where what we discussed in the last video, they're actually experiencing consumer price, price deflation right now. Oh, and I forgot, Europe most likely headed for recession, if not already in one. Oh, and I also forgot, we've got a potential war in the Middle East. We've got a war with Russia, Ukraine. We've got all of these things happening. So let me ask you a question. Do you think within the bank, oh, and I forgot about New York Community Bank, for heaven's sakes, with all of these things combined that are going on, would you say that it's most like uh, that it's most likely that the amount of risk in this system that we're talking about is going up or do you think it's going down? I think it's safe to say that it's going up. But what does that mean? Well, that means a couple different things. Number one, that the entities, let's just call it the Global First Dealer Bank, BSD, and Board Insurance Company are going to be far less likely or willing 
to lend those treasuries that they do have on their balance sheet, or BSD is far less likely to borrow them from the insurance company and lend them out. Why? Because everyone is riskier. There's a lower chance that I get paid back. And they understand, or we understand this daisy chain very, very well. And we understand that if one person doesn't pay us back, we're screwed. Now, it is true that if one person doesn't pay you back, you might be able to get treasuries from BSD instead of first dealer. As Snyder points out, there's redundancies in the system. But it's the perceived risk within the system, not just one of the entities, but the entire network goes up then you've got big, big problems from the standpoint of there will be fewer entities willing to rehypothecate these treasuries that are used for collateral, that are used to lend, that are used to create more money. And you know what happens if the amount of money starts going down in a debt-based monetary system. I don't have to tell you that, especially if the velocity is going down as well. What that leads to is a deflationary bust. In other words, GFC or GFC 2.0. But it's not, it doesn't end there. Because keep in mind, the willingness to rehypothecate would go down. That means the available collateral goes down. But the demand for collateral increases. You see, because a lot of these transactions were done with the under, that were unsecured, right? The only transactions here that needed to be secured was Singapore and Bahamas because everyone else had an awesome credit score. You see, so they were able to borrow money without having to put up any collateral. But if the amount of, of risk in the system goes up and up and up, now all of a sudden, all of these banks effectively have a bad credit score and they're all gonna need collateral to continue to do business, to continue to get that liquidity that they need to, to, to stay afloat, right? So you have this environment where the amount of collateral available due to rehypothecation is going down, but the demand for collateral is going straight up. And I'd like to once again state that this is a problem that the Fed can't solve through creating more bank reserves. As perverse and as bizarre as it sounds, the only way to solve, and it's not a solution, the only way to paper over temporarily this problem is to have the government deficit spend to a greater degree. Now, you guys know what that does. Does that come without cost? Absolutely not. Who's going to pay for that? That's going to be the American or American society at large, your, your average Joe and Janes. Why? Because the more deficit spending the government does, likely the higher government spending is as a percent of GDP, which even if there is demand for the debt, doesn't mean we don't have a problem because the problem isn't necessarily the debt. It's the government spending to begin with that distorts the economy, makes it less efficient and lowers the standard of living for society at large. So food for thought, guys, hopefully that made a lot of sense. Again, I really want to thank Jeff Snyder over at Eurodollar University for allowing us to use that diagram. And I want to be very, very clear that diagram, although it didn't seem like it is a massive oversimplification. And in the real world, it's a hundred times more complex than what it seems by looking strictly at that diagram. So this is all about risk, guys. Uh, the number one thing that you can do right now to predict what's going to happen, in my view, in 2024, 2025, is just ask yourself, is, is the perceived risk going to go up 
or is it going to go down? As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism, guys. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And if you want more content like this, if you want to actually talk to Snyder or Mike Green or uh, Joseph Wang, that used to work for the Fed, uh, you can meet them face-to-face at Rebel Capitalist Live. You can get your tickets at rebelcapitalistlive.com. I'll see you in the next video, and we'll see you in Orlando, May 31st through June 2nd.